Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grombacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, the strong and powerful Larry Swedrow. Larry, are you ready to do this? Absolutely. Excellent. Let's do this. Larry is the author of eight books. He is a sought-after speaker, a frequent contributor to NBC, CNBC, CNN, Bloomberg, and many others. And he is the director of research at Buckingham Strategic Wealth. I'm excited to have you on. Larry, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Well, first, I'll just add I'm also the co-author of eight other books on investing. Uh, I grew up in New York City, as your guests can probably already <laughs> tell from that accent. You can take the uh, boy out of the Bronx, but not the Bronx out of the boy, apparently. <laughs> Uh, I spent most of my career uh, either managing all kinds of financial risks for some of the largest financial companies in the world, including Citicorp and Prudential, or advising uh, as an investment banker for one of them, uh, some of the largest companies in the world. I ran foreign exchange trading room for Citicorp. I also ran an offshore banking facility, so funding interest rate risk. I was chief credit officer for the largest mortgage company in the country, responsible for interest rate, credit risk management. Uh, and so I've got lots of experience in managing risk. And for the last 23 years now, I've been the director of research for the Buckingham Family of Financial Services. We're a national RIA now with offices in about 25 cities and almost $15 billion of assets under management. Uh, and finally, we're also advisors to about another 135 uh, registered investment advisory firms who rely on me to act in effect as their director of research. And that's another about 19 billion of assets under management. Excellent. Well, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. And with your wealth of experience, I think that um, our listeners are going to greatly benefit from the conversation that we're going to have. And I know that you've certainly have probably a lot of insight into this conversation about active investment versus passive investing and this idea of, of alpha. And it seems like it's getting harder and harder these days to actually achieve it. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and uh, I wrote a book called The Incredible Shrinking Alpha, which I'd recommend. It's a real easy read, I think, for most people. It shouldn't take more than three or four hours at the most. Uh, try to convey the, some difficult concepts by making them easy to understand. So first, let's define what we mean by passive investing, because there are all kinds of definitions out there that are neither right nor wrong. So just so the audience knows, my definition means that there's no individual stock selection and or market timing going on. You define the universe of securities you want to buy uh, that have certain characteristics, and then you buy and hold them basically, let's say, in a market cap or equal weighting fashion. Uh, so that's my definition of active management. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, my first book came out, The Only Guide You'll Ever Need to a Winning Investment Strategy. And 
Wall Street Journal called it one of the three best investment books that year. Uh, when it came out, about 20% of active managers were generating statistically significant alpha or risk-adjusted outperformance. Uh, so, for example, that means you can't say you're outperforming treasury bonds by buying junk bonds and you don't get a recession and so credit risk doesn't show up. You have to compare, say, your performance owning junk bonds to a junk bond index. So risk adjusted. Uh, you can't say you're outperforming if you buy small cap stocks and small caps happen to outperform unless you benchmark against a small cap index. Today, several studies have shown uh, that the number has dropped from 20% to around 2% or less, and it's been persistently dropping over the last two decades and making matters even worse is both of those figures, George, are before taxes and taxes are typically the largest expense active managers face because their turnover creates those 1099 distributions. So you could cut those figures roughly in half to adjust for that. So today you've got about a 1% chance of outperforming on a risk adjusted basis. I don't know about you, George, but I don't like odds of 99 to one against me. I would not bet on that typically. So, so you're saying, and so the, the evidence is saying that only 1% after tax, only 1% of active managers are actually achieving alpha. That's correct. So true alpha, risk-adjusted outperformance on a statistically significant basis. Uh, so that, that means it's uh, – and we have evidence uh, from all kinds of studies showing that the very people who you would think should be most likely to outperform fail. By that I mean you look at the large pension plans – uh, who run tens of billions of dollars in some cases. They hire the world's leading consultants to help them identify the leading managers. These consultants are very smart people who have tremendous amount of resources. They get to do due diligence that you could never perform, asking all kinds of questions. You could be sure they've run all kinds of statistical tests, uh, met with the people, made sure they examining and asking questions in detail to see if they've got a good strategy and it's not just luck. And yet the evidence is clear from several studies. The very funds that the pension plans hire when they go through their typical, say, three-year cycles of reviewing performance, the funds they hire go on to uh, underperform the very funds they fired. In other words, they would have been better off just leaving their portfolios okay and they would have been clearly then better off using index funds or similar passive uh, vehicles uh goldman sachs uh their funds uh russell and sci which advise on trillions of assets their funds for the last 20 odd years have dramatically underperformed the similar funds we recommend from dimensional fund advisors, which are passively managed asset class funds. So there are just tremendous hurdles out there, and the book describes why it's so difficult to outperform and getting harder. And why, why is it so hard and why is it getting harder? 
Well, uh, let's start with uh, a simple rule for people to understand. If you sit at a poker table, uh, and let's say it's not in Las Vegas, it's a zero-sum game, meaning if somebody wins, somebody loses. So for you to outperform at the poker table, there has to be a sucker there uh, that you're going to exploit. And there's an old saying, if you don't know who the sucker is, it's likely you. In Vegas, of course, it's a not a zero-sum game. It's a negative-sum game because they're taking a percentage of each of the bets off of the table. And that's the way you have to think about generating alpha. So, for example, if we think about the U.S. stock market, if somebody outperforms, that means somebody underperforms. If you outperform because you overweighted Google, by definition, somebody must have underweighted Google. Uh, here's now the problem when you think about who the suckers are at the table. 70 years ago, coming out of World War II, 90% of individual stocks were held directly by individual investors. So Warren Buffett was competing with people like you and me. And every time we play that game, I think we could agree that Warren Buffett is likely to be able to exploit us and generate alpha in his stock selections. Unfortunately, today the world is dramatically different. Uh, and uh, the last data I had when I wrote that book, back by 2008 already, less than 20% of the stocks were owned by individual investors directly. They were now owned by either mutual funds or hedge funds or other sophisticated investors such as pension plans and other institutions. So exactly who is the sucker at that table? In other words, 20, 30, 50 years ago when Goldman Sachs's smart traders were buying a stock, they likely were buying it from an individual investor who was undervaluing it or if they were selling it, the individual was overvaluing it. Today, when Goldman's trading, over 90% of the trading is typically done between institutional investors. So exactly who is Goldman exploiting when it's Morgan Stanley or Warren Buffett or Renaissance Technology or some high-frequency trader that's on the other end of the trade? That's the problem that your listeners probably never think about is – when they're buying the stock, they have to think that there's some dummy on the other side of the trade who doesn't know that this stock is undervalued like you know it. And that's a real problem. Investors dramatically uh, underestimate the collective wisdom of the market, which makes it very hard to outperform. Uh, you're competing today mostly with highly sophisticated institutions with far more resources than you have. All right. That's so, one reason. Let me okay. add one other. When I started in the business uh, 30 years ago or so, most of the people who were managing money, even for institutions, were not trained out of MBA and PhD programs. They may have been an English major who came out of school and then uh, got training. I actually went through the first formal finance programs in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, because there wasn't any formal asset pricing models until what was called the capital asset pricing model was created. So the first graduates of MBA programs in finance didn't come until really the late 70s. 
and uh, today the world is very different. Virtually everyone who's managing money, certainly at the big institutions, they're world-class mathematicians, physicists, scientists, MBAs, PhDs in finance. In fact, the chief investment officer of Dimensional Fund Advisors, one of the main fan families we use, is a PhD in rocket science. Uh, my co-author of The Incredible Shrinking Alpha has a PhD in physics and is the director of research for Bridgeway, another one of the fund families we use. That's who you're competing against. You have to ask, who is the likely sucker at the table when those people who are spending 100% of their time and all those resources they have, again, and they're competing against you? Who is the likely winner? If we're honest, the answer is the sucker is likely us. Sure. Well, I 100% agree with that. If I, if I am attempting to get a leg up or get an edge against an institution of any kind, I will certainly come on on the losing end. But what about a an, an active manager? I don't want to use a specific company, but there's a lot of them out there. Why is it even though they have those same smart folks that they're not able to? Right. To, to, okay. So uh, two things. One, there are costs involved. It's not a zero-sum game. And the cost uh, 20 years ago uh, – when you know expense ratios were higher typically than they are today and transactions costs are were much higher than they are today and commissions were much higher even with those advantages uh, only 20 percent were outperforming before taxes and maybe 10 after taxes and that's because even by then as i told you you know, maybe 80% of the trading was done by institutions. So they could exploit some of the people. And in fact, that's exactly what the research showed was going on. The average, there are studies showing that the stocks, the average individual investor buys goes on to underperform the, the market and the stocks they sell go on to outperform. Uh, and that's logical, right? For the very reasons we discussed, they're likely the suckers. So that means the reverse must be true for institutions. And that's what the research has shown and still does show. Uh, but the numbers are too small. Uh, let's say uh, the average individual is losing about 70 basis points or so to the market. That's about what has been found for the benefit for active managers. But then you've got to incur all the expenses, not only the expense ratio of the fund, let's assume 1%, then you've got trading costs and all that taxes for taxable investors, and you end up with negative alpha after expenses, which is all that matters. But today the competition's much tougher, so even though costs have come down, trading costs, bid offer spreads, expense ratios, it's even harder because the pool of victims continues to shrink and shrinking at a very fast pace. About 7% of all actively managed funds are disappearing every year now. Huh, wow. Did you say 7% are disappearing every year? Yeah. yeah, and it's usually, of course, 
think about it this way. Who are the ones that are disappearing? It's the underperformers, right? right. Uh, and that means the remaining players, the competition is even tougher among them. Hmm. Uh, it would be like a free throw shooting contest with NBA players. And after a few rounds, you know, well, the poor players are gone and you're left maybe with Steph Curry shooting against Kevin Durant and they both shoot 90%. It's hard to win, right? Yeah, not a lot of... That's what's happening. People fail to understand that the competition is getting harder and harder because the pool of victim is shrinking, <laughs> number one, and the remaining players competing are on average much more skilled, and we have so many more dollars chasing these few sources of alpha. One last uh, other point uh, on this is 50 years ago when the first capital asset pricing model was created, uh, it was a single factor model. And that factor was market beta, which represents the risk of the overall market. So it gave us the first form of definition of risk and expected returns. But there were anomalies, there were problems. And the research showed that if you bought small stocks and value stocks, then you would outperform. And then the model shifted in 1993 with the publication of a paper by Ken French and Jean Fama called The Cross-Section of Expected Returns. And they said we could do a much better job of explaining returns by adding these other factors. And what happened was prior to then, if you bought small stocks and outperformed or value stocks as Warren Buffett did, you could claim legitimately alpha. But now with this new model, we could you know, test it to see if you were outperforming because you were buying small and value stocks. And once we made that adjustment, the percentage of managers that were outperforming began to collapse. And since then, as my book explains, and I wrote a book for those of you more technically oriented, I'd urge you to read your complete guide to factor-based investing. That's the latest research on academic uh, finance, cites over 106 academic papers, and it shows you the evolution of financial theory. And today we have other factors such as momentum and profitability are two other examples of quality. And now we know, for example, once you adjust Warren Buffett's stock picks, these factors, if you bought an index of stocks that had the same characteristics, Warren Buffett's alpha disappears from a statistically significant uh, basis. Now, that takes nothing away from Buffett's performance. He discovered these things 40, 50 years before the academics. But today, everybody who invests in the funds we use or some ETFs replicate can replicate Buffett's performance. And for the last uh, 20 years, Buffett has not outperformed these benchmarks. Uh, so the market in effect has caught up with Buffett and the skill and the competition is caught up with Buffett. Again, nothing taken away from him. His performance was outstanding, but now every one of clients in my firm invests in the same way. The world has become flat. Yeah, from an investment standpoint, in terms of the competition, it's certainly becoming more flat. 
Still, individual investors do dumb things. They tend to buy what are called lottery stocks. Right. Yeah, you know, the stocks they try to hit a home run. The general simple definition you could use are stocks, small cap growth stocks that tend to have low profitability currently and high investment. So you could think of them as all those dot coms in the late 90s. Mm. Those stocks not only have god-awful returns underperforming the market, they actually have outright negative returns, and yet individuals continue to buy them, while institutions more aware of the research tend to avoid them. Other stocks, individuals overweight and institutions underweight are IPOs uh, and penny stocks and stocks in bankruptcy. Again, here you have individuals trying to hit the home run buying a lottery ticket. Uh, I tell people you want to spend a buck on a lottery ticket, maybe that's okay, but don't put, take your retirement plan <laughs> to the lottery office and don't put it in these kinds of stocks either. So you can uh, add value a bit as an active manager by avoiding these stocks, but they are all very small slivers of the market, maybe two to 3% of the entire market. So you can gain an advantage there, but uh, the funds we use also exclude these stocks uh, in their eligible universes. So you don't need to be an active manager to gain those advantages. Excellent. Well, Larry, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? Okay, I think if I had one, I wrote a book called Investment Mistakes Even Smart People Make and How to Avoid Them. It contains 77 mistakes. It'll make you a much better investor. But if I had to pick one of those 77, it would be that to, uh, you should avoid the mistake of confusing information with knowledge or what I call value relevant information. So a simple way to think about it is this. You want to buy a stock, say it's uh, some pharmaceutical company because you know it's got a great pipeline of drugs and they're going to change the world and cure cancer. It's got a strong balance sheet, good management. You list 50 good reasons and I tell you, I agree, those are all true, but it's completely irrelevant. And the reason is, if you know it, then the smart guys at Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley and the hedge funds know it. That information's already in the price and it's too late for you to act. If you think that isn't true, you are truly the sucker at the poker table. <laughs> the only way it's not true is if it's inside information and Martha Stewart found out what happens if you <laughs> trade on that. Oh, uh, that is great stuff. That definitely gets a come on. Come on. So, Larry, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Well, you can uh, go to uh, Amazon.com, and I've written now 16 books with the 17th coming shortly. You can also go to Twitter. Uh, I write uh, regular blog posts for ETF.com and Advisor Perspective. And you can go to our website at uh, Buckingham Strategic Wealth uh, uh, and find out more there. And you can set up a Google alert under my name if you're interested in my musings. It'll alert you whenever I post uh, at one of those websites. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Larry your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Check out 
some or all of his books. Find him on Twitter as well as his website. Thank you again, Larry. My pleasure and happy to come back anytime, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we're all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!